Let's uh, open our Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 26, please. Matthew 26. We're going to look at the first five verses of Matthew 26 this morning. You maybe have an outline when you walked in. Great. Uh, if you have a Three Crosses app on your phone or tablet, whatever, you can open that up. There's an outline portion there in the app that you can follow along. We've got some ground to cover this morning. Today actually begins the last section in the Gospel of Matthew. It's known as the Passion Narratives. And today we walk into the Passion Narrative with a beautiful introduction to this whole piece. <clears throat> and as important as everything is in the Gospel of Matthew, amazing stuff that we've read for the last two years. But for Matthew's Gospel and for the Gospel and for the whole Scripture, the whole Bible, this is the main event. Matthew wants us to know that everything so far in this gospel is leading us to this point where Jesus is going to go to the cross and give his life for us. And this is actually what we're going to look at today is an intro to the passion narrative. And I think some of us even looking at these five verses think, wow, you know, we're going to rest in this for the whole time this morning. Yes, we are. Because this is Matthew's point. Matthew's point is that this is the setup that cuts deep tracks through which the whole passion narrative travels. And so you're going to come back and see that this morning. Let me read it together with you as you follow along, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Okay, this introduction into the Passion Narratives shows us two parallel tracks. Do you see them there? Uh, the first track is the love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and his determined love for those he came to save. The other track is humanity's rejection and hateful uh, bitterness toward this one who's come to save them. Grace and love on one track, sin and hateful rejection on the other, but both tracks are going to lead us right to the cross. In verses 1 and 2, I want to show you this morning Jesus' plans for giving his life, and in verses 3 through 5, I want to look at humanity's plan for taking it. But the beautiful thing about this passage to me is that it shows us that while Man, humankind, has hated Christ and wanted nothing to do with Christ and one sly way to get Christ out of life and eventually to put him on the cross. It was God's plan and Jesus' determined love that took him there. And what we see in that is the beautiful orchestration of what we call the sovereignty of God. That God works out in, most, in the most inexplicable ways what so often we think we're doing in our plan is actually in some way mysteriously working out God's plan. And so we're going to see that this morning as we look at the cross. So let's look first at this section, verses 1 and 2, of Jesus' plan to give his life. And I just want to point out a couple of things. Uh, first, I want to remind us that this has been God's plan all along. This was not plan B or C or D. This was plan A that God would send his son, Jesus, that he would send the Messiah. As far back as Genesis 3, you remember when Adam and Eve sinned, 
against God. God came to the serpent who had tempted them to sin and he judged the serpent and he said in chapter 3 verse 15, he, the seed of the woman, will crush your head, God says to the serpent, and you, the serpent, will strike his heel. That's the first reference to the amazing work that Jesus would accomplish when he goes to the cross. His heel would be bruised, but he would crush the head of the serpent. It's a forecast. It's a picture of what's coming. So this was in the minds of God's people, the mind of God's people from the very beginning. And we'll see that a little bit later in the message this morning. But I want to show you three things of just in these two verses about Jesus' death. First, I want to talk about the certainty of his death. Do you notice at the end of verse 2 how certain this is? And the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Now, Jesus has already said this to his disciples a few times in the Gospel of Matthew. Can I refresh your memory? Go back to chapter 16, please. Chapter 16 and verse 21. Great to hear pages turning. I can't hear the, you know, when you change your phone or your tablet. 16.21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Go over to chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. And when they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Go over to chapter 20, verse 18. Jesus said to his disciples, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Okay, why do I show you this? Because three times Jesus has said to his disciples, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And here it is. He's saying the Son of Man is going to be given over. The Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Now, if this was important in the mind of Jesus to remind his disciples, and here in the Gospel of Matthew four different times, I think that's something for us to think about. I've found that many times people in our day and age and probably people throughout the ages have been a little more enamored with the, uh, the works of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the healing of Jesus, all kinds of things that Jesus has done, the teachings of Jesus, great things. Don't want to minimize those things. Amazing. But this is the main event. What about the death of Jesus? And in our culture in particular, the death of Jesus is becoming continually crowded out with so many other messages about him. In Jesus' ministry, it was all about and only about his death. He set his face toward Jerusalem. He went there to die for us. The cross is the central message of the gospel. In fact, I think it's a fair statement to say that the death and resurrection of Christ stands the whole of Christianity. It's the cross and it's the empty tomb. And this is what God wants us to see today. This is why Matthew penned it. This is why Jesus said it. It's so that we focus on his death. You know, here at Three Crosses, we we think a lot about the cross. (laughs) Um, You know, we see the cross whenever we come in here. It's usually big and bold. A reminder to us, I remember reading a book by John Fisher once. He wrote a book called On a Hill Too Far Away. 
And it was on how so many Christians kind of lose sight of the cross in their lives. And uh, he, in the, one of the opening chapters of his book, he describes a church that had sort of lost their bearing about the cross. And so they decided to build a cross in the center of their lobby so obtruse and so big that when people came in, they had to walk over it, they had to walk around it. There was no way to get anywhere in that church without coming to the place of the cross. Crosses mean a lot. You know, we've got these three crosses out on the end of our property. And you know, those of you that are going to 101 today, you're going to hear some stories about the crosses, but I'm going to just steal a little of Mark's thunder here today because uh, the crosses are amazing. Um, You know, when this church was built in 1969, it was originally planned that there would be just a big cross out there on the edge of the property. But the former pastor, Pastor Jake Bielig, who I succeeded uh, his wife, Charlotte, had an idea when talking to the architect. She said, what if we had a cluster of crosses? Now, see, people have asked through the years, well, why do you have three crosses out there? And people will say, I get it, I get it. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? No, that's not it. Or it's because on the cross of Christ, there were two thieves on each side, right? The gospel tells us that. So there were three crosses at Calvary. No, that's not it either. I mean, those are great images, and that's a beautiful thing. But the reason why we have three crosses is a simple, very pragmatic thing. Charlotte suggested we have a cluster of crosses so that wherever you are coming from, whether you're coming from Oakland, San Leandro, Castro Valley, you're going up the boulevard, you're down on Foothill, wherever you could see the cluster of crosses, you would actually see a cross. That's it. That's why there's a cluster of crosses out there. And what an amazing idea so that everyone would see the cross. I wonder how many thousands of people drive by this church every day and see the cross. Isn't that great? In fact, fun story. I was, in, I was in Seattle, Washington, working on my doctoral program years ago, and I was sitting in the living room with a guy from a church that we were up there uh, visiting, and, and he said, he was an airline pilot with Alaska Airlines, and I said, oh, you know, well, I'm from the Bay Area. Okay, great. You know what part? Well, Castro Valley, where's that? I said, well, it's south of Oakland a little bit. Well, I fly into Oakland all the time. I said, well, yeah, actually, our church has these three big white crosses, and he stopped me mid-sense and I've seen those crosses. He goes, that's where we turn 18 degrees coming in for Oakland. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. You, you go VFR when you come into Oakland. You see the crosses. I think that's amazing. We love the fact that people see the crosses. You know, this church is called Neighborhood Church, but a few years ago we decided, let's just call it Three Crosses. You know, because when you're out in the neighborhood and you tell, hey, would you come to church with me this next week? Oh, where is it? It's in Castro Valley. Oh, what's the name of it? Neighborhood Church. Oh, really? Mm. They think, it's the Church of the Three Crosses. Oh, the Church of the Three Crosses. <laughs> so let's just cut to the chase. Come to the Church of the Three Crosses. Anyway, that's about the crosses. <laughs> I'm wondering if there can be any true understanding of the gospel where there's no mention or focus of the cross. The cross symbolizes for us the death the worthy death of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was perfect, who was without sin, who was an unblemished lamb, the lamb of God. If your theology doesn't include the cross, which means Christ suffered and died for you and you also must take up that cross to follow him, which means suffering and death for you, Death to self, death to your dream, death to whatever you think you want to do in life if Jesus shows you otherwise. That's a message that we don't hear much in our culture today. We want Jesus and everything around Jesus except the cross. 
But it's only the cross that Jesus is concerned about. In fact, 1 Peter 2.21, Peter writes this. He says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. The apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live now by faith in, in my flesh, by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's all about the cross. Ask yourself the question, where does sacrifice, suffering, and the death of Christ come into my view in terms of my spiritual journey with Christ? Is there anything in my life that needs to die? Anything that I'm holding on to that needs to be put to death so that I can serve Christ? There's the certainty of Jesus' death. That's the first thing I wanted to show you. Secondly, there's an alert about the timing of his death. Uh, the timing of his death. Notice in verse 2, two days away. So this is Passion Week we're in in the Scripture right here. This is Wednesday of Passion Week. Jesus is telling his disciples that Passover is two days away. This is going to be the timing of his death. And I have a feeling that the disciples immediately thought of many other pictures that they had in the Old Testament uh, and the only testament that they had at the time in terms of this sacrifice that would be made. And I couldn't help but to think that they probably went to Genesis 22. And in Genesis 22, we have the picture of Abraham and Abraham taking his son, the promised son, the promised heir up to the mountain, remember? To be sacrificed. God told him to sacrifice his son. Crazy, inexplicable instructions. And there on that mount where he was going to sacrifice his son in obedience to God, you can only imagine the strain of that scene where as the knife is raised high, God speaks forth to Abraham and he says, wait, and in the thicket there's a ram. There's a sacrificial animal that is going to be given instead of Isaac. God set that whole thing up as a picture for everyone ever since Genesis 22 that the sacrifice would come as a sacrifice of atonement, uh, a sacrifice of replacement, a sacrifice for you and me. Exodus 12, I'm sure the disciples thought of that, the deliverance of God's people. We'll come back to that in just a minute, but you remember Exodus 12 where God said to the people of Israel as they were coming out of Egypt, take the perfect lamb, spill the blood, put it over the doorpost of your house, and my death angel that will come over and bring death and havoc to the people of Egypt and to Pharaoh for all of his obstinance and rebellion and rejection of God's instruction, judgment would fall on the land of Egypt and God's people would be spared if they put the blood over the doorpost and the mantle. What a beautiful picture that is. A reminder that if the blood of the Lamb is not over our hearts, we also will suffer the judgment of God. But we escape the judgment of God when the blood of His spotless Lamb is over the mantle of our hearts. I think of Numbers 21. You remember that Old Testament story? You talk about a crazy story? The people of Israel, they're out in the wilderness wandering. They're grumbling against Moses. They're fighting. They're doubting God. And so God sends judgment to them uh, by sending them venomous snakes. Anybody like snakes here? Most people don't. Some people do. That's all right. Um, snakes are interesting uh, creatures. But these venomous snakes bit all these Israelites, and they were dying. They were poisonous snakes. 
And God says to Moses as he cries out to to God, spare the people, bring healing to the people. And God says to Moses, he says, take a pole, put a serpent on it, and raise it up. And anyone that sees this serpent, if they just see it, will live. And then in John 3, if I, the Son of Man, be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. It's a picture. God's deliverance, God's healing, God staying his judgment by just looking to Christ. And by the way, that's not just a visual. In the Old Testament, it was a visual. If they saw the serpent on the pole, they lived. Now today, you must see the Christ who died on the cross for us. And to see him is to see him in Scripture. He's speaking to us right here. For the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Isaiah 53, Jesus is the suffering servant. He was crushed for our iniquities, pierced for our transgressions. The punishment that was meant for us was on him, Isaiah 53 tells us. All these pictures and the disciples as they heard this on Wednesday of Passion Week couldn't have helped but to think, wow, what was in the past, what was forecasted is two days away. Wow. The certainty of his death, the timing of his death. Let me show you one more thing quickly here. The framework that helps us interpret the meaning of his death. And here I just put a little footnote in to the point I made about Passover because Jesus said this would all coincide with the Passover. As you know, verse 2, the Passover is two days away. The Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Jesus knew exactly the time. He knew exactly the place. And of course, he was in charge, wasn't he? He had his face set on what was going to take place. And Passover, every Jewish person knew that Passover had within it, laced within it the meaning of this sacrifice that was made. When I talk to my Jewish friends today, I'll I'll ask them about their Jewish Seder meal, which is Passover. And they have an elaborate meal that they tell the story of God's redemption of his people, rescuing them out of Egypt. And I think, how do you not see that all of this points to Jesus, every single piece of the meal. It's about Jesus. And God instituted that feast so that his people from 2,000 years before he even came would know the story of redemption so that when he came, they would know the story of redemption so that when he left this world and waits until his return, which which we don't know when it will be, we can still tell the story. We tell it through a meal. We tell it through the feast. We tell it through through his story as revealed in Scripture. It's everywhere. The meaning of his death is that he is the sacrificial lamb. He is the one who paid for the sins of this world. So juxtaposed to Jesus' plan to give his life, if you're taking notes, verses 3 through 5 shows us humanity's plan to take his life. I find it so fascinating that as Jesus is telling this to his disciples, the chief uh, priests and elders are assembled and they're working out their plan. And their plan is to take the life of Jesus. If you go back to chapter 12 of Matthew, chapter 12, verse 41, this is the first reference to the fact, look at this, all the way back to 1241. It says at the end of this, where are we here? 1241. Did I write that down wrong? 1214, sorry. 1214. There we are. 
Jesus heals this man in verse 14. The Pharisees went out and plotted how they might, what? Kill Jesus. That's back in chapter 12. You know how long the religious leaders are hoping to put Jesus to death? They've been plotting this for a while. And now the heat is up so much that they are getting ready to do the deed. But you know, it's amazing. Jesus was not put to death by any of their design, by any of their plots, by any of their schemes. And in fact, John, the Apostle John reminds us in his wonderful gospel in chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, we'll put it on the screen, let's just look at this together. Jesus says, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again, this command I received from my Father. Now think about this. What Jesus is saying is, nobody's going to take my life. I'm going to give my life. This is a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty. Here's all these guys over here planning, plotting, plotting. And they think they're going to do their plan. And Jesus at the same time is saying, I'm going to give my life. In fact, this comes together in such a beautiful way in Acts 2.23. Remember Peter on Pentecost preaches this amazing sermon. And he says, at a crescendo in this sermon, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you, he's speaking to the Jewish people, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Did you get that? God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So do you realize that in one sweeping word from the scripture, we are all culpable as the ones who took Christ and murdered him on the cross. We're culpable, we're guilty of that, Yes, it was you and me who put him on the cross. It is his sacrificial death. It would have been our death. So we give, uh, we give reference to the fact that it was our sins that placed him there. We're guilty of, of putting Christ on the cross. But at the same time, God says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yes, it's true, you're guilty. You're sinners. You deserve to die. But here's my love for you. I'm sending my son. And I'm going to give his life for you. This is the sacrifice. This is the ultimate picture of God's sovereignty, the track of human rebellion next in parallel line with God's relentless love coming together at the cross. And notice, first of all, if you're taking notes, that the setting is ironically religious. Uh, this is as religious as you get. This is the high priest, Caiaphas, uh, and Caiaphas hated Jesus wanted him put to death for his entire reign as, as, uh, as high priest. He reigned as high priest from A.D. 18 to about A.D. 36. So this is near the end of his own tenure as the high priest. And his, his father-in-law, Annas, which was also a high priest before him, hated Jesus too. And Annas was in charge of the temple when Jesus came into the temple at the beginning of his ministry. And you remember he turned over the, the tables and and drove out the money collectors and, cha and changers. He does it again. We're going to see it coming up. He does this as a part of his own cleansing. Actually, I'm sorry. He's done this already twice now in the Gospels. He did it coming into Jerusalem for the Passion. And he does it also earlier in his public ministry. And Annas hated Jesus. Wanted Jesus' death, dead. And his son-in-law, Caiaphas, wanted him dead too. So he gets the whole Sanhedrin, which is 70 You've got, you got the highest ranks of spiritual leadership in Israel all together. And what are they doing? They're scheming to put him to death. And I think this is amazing to realize that this is a religious group. 
Ken Geyer, in his meaningful book, Moments with Our Savior, says, don't forget that it, it is the most religiously elite that seem to portray the most hateful and deceitful practices toward Jesus. And he goes on to say that it was the first hand to strike the face of Jesus was a religious hand. Interesting. The religious system of Jesus' day was corrupt. The religious system of our day today is also corrupt. So many so-called churches espousing nothing of the faith passed down from Scripture or the apostles. You know, when people tell me they go to church, I used to be excited when I heard that. Oh, great, awesome, what church? And now I kind of ask with a little bit more incredulity. I kind of say, uh, really, what church do you go to? Because just because you're in church doesn't necessarily mean you know the Christ of the Bible or the one who has called us from darkness into light. There's a lot of churches that have the name church, but there's really no mention of Christ. There's no mention of the cross. A dear friend of mine was back east for the last few weeks, and she told me that um, she had visited some churches with her husband back there, and... and uh, and they just, it was hard to find a church. There was one church that, you know, good message, but not a lot of Bible, you know, a little verse sprinkled in here or there. Um, you know, practical for how to live life maybe, but, you know, there's just a lot of places that don't teach the central message of the gospel. That Jesus died for sins, he rose again from the grave. And until we come to the place by God's grace, that we see our need to die, pick up our cross and follow Jesus, we just might be religious people, just a bunch of religious folk walking around, maybe no Bible verses, maybe, you know, good morally. You know, Jesus didn't die to make us moral people. He died to make us new creations. And newness only comes from death to self and following Jesus to the cross. To receive the forgiveness of sins. I walked out of Safeway yesterday and there was a young man there and asked me if he could give me his blog name so that he, I could follow him. And I said, well, interesting, what's your blog about? And he goes, well, I'm starting a new religion. <laughs> I said, well, hey, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus. He died for me. He rose again from the grave. Man, I just like, I just powered the gospel on this guy. I go, I have no allegiance other than him. I'll never want anything more than him. And he stood there a little dumbfounded, and he said, listen to this, he goes, well, Jesus is part of my religion. <laughs> you know, and maybe, I think at that point, he didn't really want to hear too much more of what I had to say. But, you know, and it wasn't adversarial. I was, to be honest, I was just fired up that here was a young man that had some kind of idea that he could start some religion that sprinkled Jesus into it. And I just encouraged pray for you. Don't do that. I don't know. I don't know. I, I think I could have maybe even done more better, better with him. <laughs> but it's just a weird, you know, you have those experiences sometimes. But think of all the people in our culture who are spiritual. Nothing about the cross. Nothing about Jesus' death. Nothing about his, his atoning work. Nothing about the resurrection. Nothing. It's all about being a good person and living the best you can and getting your dream. And by the way, it's all about Jesus meeting your dreams. Yeah. 
That's what a lot of churches have turned to. Jesus will help meet your dream. You got some things in your life. Let Jesus accomplish it for you. That's not the gospel. I'm grateful that Jesus allows us and gives us beautiful things, and we are so blessed in every area. But the gospel call is not for God to fit into our plans. It's to fit into His. And I hope, I hope when you come here, I hope you listen with discerning ears. I, I hope that this is a place where you just don't take for granted. And, you know, I get emails from people, and what do you mean by this, and clarification and all that, and that's good. I'm glad people are listening. And sometimes when people get the real raw message and they think, oh, man, did you really say that? I say, yes, we did. We're not afraid of the truth. We're not afraid of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So there's this eerie setting that is ironically religious. Next, there's a scheme to arrest Jesus in some sly way. I'm not going to say a lot about this, but I find it interesting that this is a picture of humanity's depravity in a perfect clarity because we're not putting Jesus on the cross these days, but we're sure working in sly ways to do away with him, right? There are people everywhere, even people that call themselves Christians who are doing away with Jesus. They want their will, not his will. And if I'm honest, I would tell you that there are times in my life where I don't want to do the will of God. And I, I find sly ways of pushing Jesus away. And thankfully, by his grace, he wrestles me back in. And he says, look, it's not your faithfulness that keeps you. It's my faithfulness that keeps you. And so we're all just a pile of mess, you know. We're all sinners. We're all missed. But we got to get one thing straight, and that is... Jesus came to die and give his life for us. And sometimes we think that, you know, it's the other way around. Um, let's just look at this last thing. I like the stipulation to avoid no matter what, verse 5. I, this is a, it's not meant to be humorous, but it's ironic. that This is the one, you can see them around the table and they're working. In fact, the word plotted there in the Greek language means uh, to have, uh, to be puzzled in mind. So they were like, they were strategizing and trying to figure this out. And it was like somebody finally put their hand out on the table and said, hey, wait, 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 whatever we do, let's make sure we don't do it during the feast of Passover. <laughs> and you could just hear him say, yeah, 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 let's not do that. Because the Galilean Jews are in town, and we know there could have been up to a million people, travelers in Jerusalem at this time of the Passover. Josephus, an early historian, first century historian of the Jews, wrote that in one particular Passover that he noted, there were 250,000 lambs slain. That means at least a million people in the town of Jerusalem. I don't know if that was the case when Jesus was crucified, but it was a huge crowd of people. And they said, we don't want the Galilean Jews upset because they'd seen his miracles. They'd followed him down there. They were the ones waving the palm branches saying, Hosanna in the name of the Lord, you know, blessed be the name of the Lord. But the Judean Jews were coming around too. There were people there that believed. And Jesus would have been arrested publicly by these folks right here during Passover. Oh, man, a riot would have broken out. Um, but no, they said, no way, not, not then. <laughs> and then I just chuckled because at the same time, Jesus is saying, yep, it's going to happen. They had a plan, but God's plan triumphs all other plans. They felt in control, but God's the one in control. You know what I love about this text? It shows that while the religious leaders thought they were putting Jesus to death, are you ready for this? Jesus was, was giving 
them his life. He was loving them to death. Have you ever had anybody love you to death? That's what Jesus did. He loved us all the way to the cross. He loved us to death. Whatever you're facing today, whatever you're going through today, you have a Savior that died for you. If you'll turn to Him and acknowledge Him, and if you already have done that, then no matter what you're going through, thank you, Jesus. My life is secure. So we've just entered the passion narratives. And from this point forward, oh, it gets so beautiful. I can't wait for the next few weeks. You know some people in your life that need to know how much Jesus loved them to death? Bring them, bring them, bring them. This is the centerpiece of the gospel. Oh, we're in for some beautiful weeks ahead. Let's go to prayer right now.